The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink. And I'm honored today to be joined by uh, Kai Vandaloo. And uh, where are you coming? Uh, where, where are you zooming in from today? I'm in San Francisco, California. Nice. Uh, is it overcast? It usually is. The sun is starting to come out. So nice. as usual, this time of day. Nice. Well, I appreciate you being here today with us. Uh, now, Kai is uh, today uh, the CTO of a company called user testing which we'll talk uh, in depth about later on like you said lives in san francisco born in stockholm sweden yep now you are uh, married what's your wife's name michalia michalia you got it and uh, a seven-year-old son yeah and what's his Ar- name aristoteles thor awesome that's a great name that's a powerful name so I've got a I've got a two and a half year old son at home named Johnny. Uh, I, I I went I went right with uh, the same name. <laughs> I growing up with a short name, I wanted him to have a long name. Kai is a very inconvenient name. Like somebody says hi or whatever, you think they <laughs> hear your name. It's uh, nobody confuses Aristoteles with anything. <laughs> so. Some of the people that uh, Kai has worked with uh, have called him a visionary leader and a true innovator. So, uh, like I said, we really appreciate you being here today. And uh, please give our listeners a quick background on yourself. So, yeah, I born and raised in Sweden, uh, studied physics, always been very interested in natural sciences. I actually did work as a physicist for a while. Uh, before I just ended up in enterprise software, more or less by coincidence. Uh, Spent many years at SAP as a developer and doing different things across the whole product organization, across the whole company. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Uh, Came out here to California in 96. It's going to be a year or two. Uh, It's going to be 25 years in November. And uh, been doing different things in enterprise software out here. Since then, always on the product side of the house, uh, worked for two large companies, SAP and Oracle, a couple of smaller ones, uh, mainly high growth uh, companies with a couple of hundred people. It's something I really enjoy. I've been with user testing for two years now, uh, truly enjoying it. Uh, absolutely great company, uh, lots of good people. I think we have a product that I can see every day how it helps our customers do good things so it's uh, it's really exciting it's something I've enjoyed with every company I've been with is to see how our products help our customers be better well that's that's what it's that's what it's all about right I mean in every every bit of life is if you're helping somebody do something and you're doing a good job at it you're going to be successful you know, and uh, watching technology 
you know, just form into something that is going to trans transform people's lives in a better way. I mean, that's super exciting stuff. I, I agree. And I didn't, as I said, I didn't come into this job or this career from a computer science background and like fascination with the software itself. I've rather been fascinated by what you can do with the software, what the software does for a company. And, and usually it helps the company somehow serve its customers better. So that's been big motivator for me. It's kind of, I'm always excited to spend actual time with customers and understand what they do and how we can help them. So what do you, uh, you, you kind of said before that you've been with huge companies, SAP, Oracle, and then with smaller companies. Where, where do you enjoy more, the huge companies or the smaller companies or in between or kind of give me an idea. You, you've been at uh, kind of both sides of it. I'd say now this the this, this scale up phase, like once the the shaky startup phase is over and you actually you know you have a business, you know you have found a product market fit, and then scaling that, uh, growing it, kind of serving existing customers better, serving more customers, um, serving more people at existing customers, uh, scaling that up, scaling the organization, making sure that we we build a company that actually can work without reliance on, on individuals, uh, least of all myself. I never want any me to be uh, crucial for anything, but rather like trying to build organizations that are uh, almost organic and like very resilient and can, can function on their own. That's the phase I, I think I enjoy the most. And that's like smack where we are now with user testing. And uh, that's something I really enjoy. So let's go back, way back. Well, maybe not way back, but uh, let's go back a little bit. Uh, and uh, what was it like growing up in Sweden? I've never been there before. I've just seen beautiful pictures, and I, I, I think of snow. I think of hot chocolate. <laughs> you know, G give us a little bit of insight into what it was like growing up there. I really enjoyed it. I had a great childhood, uh, great parents. Uh, grew up just outside of Stockholm. Um, easy access both to to the city. Stockholm is a beautiful city. Uh, it's like built on a number of islands right on where a big lake meets the Baltic Sea. So there's water everywhere. City has been the capital of Stockholm forever. Never been destroyed. Never been like we don't have earthquakes. Never been a big fire. Uh, never been any war there. So it's like it, it's just beautiful. And uh, same time easy access to nature. Uh, Swedes are very much connected to, to nature. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time outdoors. It doesn't matter that the weather isn't that pleasant for about 11 months a year. Um, still, uh, we, we spend time outdoors enjoying nature. I had a great childhood in, in that, like this, having like one foot in the city, and, and what I think is a nice city, and like one foot in in nature and spending a lot of time outside. We had a little cabin out on an island. I learned to sail when I was, I don't know what, five, six years old. And it's been like sailing has been a natural way of getting around. And in winter, we would sometimes cross country ski to school, and stuff like that. And like the whole outdoors lifestyle was even a big part of school. The school would take us uh, in winter cross country skiing or ice skating. And, it was a lot of this 
spending time outside and so I, I really I enjoyed it and, and Sweden was it's kind of an e- easy place to grow up in a way I think it was extremely homogenous back then uh, it's easy you met somebody it was easy to get to know people because we all had very similar backgrounds and similar interests and I was I would truly enjoyed it so what was uh what did your parents do I mean what what is what is the main industry there and then what did, what did your parents do kind of two questions in one Sweden's industry structure is dominated by like a number of big companies uh big exporting companies you're all familiar with Volvo and um, uh, Ericsson maybe those kind of big manufacturing technology companies founded over a hundred years ago by some clever engineers so that kind of dominates the industry structure especially back then but my dad was an entrepreneur he's a printer so he had his own print shop uh, I spent a lot of time there the print shop was closer to my school than than our home was so I would always go with him to work in the morning work with him for a few hours and then go to school from school I would come back to to his print shop spend some time there and then go home with him so uh, I kind of grew up in a print shop and uh, very interesting and and the, the transformations that industry has gone through is just amazing from letterpress to offset and then the whole digitization that came as you've been dramatic changes it's like yeah it's huge yeah it's been really interesting and, and uh, not too dissimilar from what we've seen in the software industry where the i'm old enough to to remember how the three-tier client-server architecture came in and kind of made the mainframe obsolete pretty quickly and then how uh, SaaS came in and made on-premise obsolete pretty quickly and the same kind of waves of change that, uh, that I, I got to see firsthand in the printing industry when my dad was trying to navigate those, those changes. Well, that's what uh, the entrepreneur has to do is uh, kind of gauge what's happening in the marketplace and then, you know, make the move or don't make the move and go down with the ship. Yeah. Place the bet uh, at the right time and hopefully place the right bet. I, I was uh, like we talked about prior. I'm, a, I'm in the IT staffing co- business and I started in Minneapolis back in the late 90s. So it was right before Y2K. So, you know, there was ton of mainframe as 400 uh my, my big thing was as 400 back then and you know before y2k they were saying that you know airplanes are going to fall out of the sky and all kinds of different things are going to happen you know thank god it didn't but uh seeing the evolution of how technology has changed and like you were talking about in the beginning of the podcast um i'm not a technical person i employ many, many technical people. And it's awesome for me at a 35,000 foot level, I can look down and see what they're doing and understand what the technology does, but have no idea what they're doing. You know, but it's, it's being that cog in the middle to put people in the right place to help our clients. You know, so there's so many different places we can all fit into this and it's just so amazing to watch it all happen. Yeah, no, I, I don't do any hands-on development and so I'm kind of a little bit losing touch with what's going on 
but it's but I'm still interested in the technology and I still try to understand when when people explain and sometimes I feel it's necessary for me to to understand even at a relatively detailed level uh, to be able to help people do their job and to help them I don't need to solve the technical problems for them but maybe I can help them find others whom they need to work with or whatever it is so I think a bit of a, an understanding of what's going on technically is quite helpful so what's uh kind of the last question about Sweden growing up there and then being in the USA what what's the biggest differences between the cultures in Sweden and then the United States it's a great question um I'll try to make an answer up quickly I, the, I've, the the 25 years I've spent in the U.S. I've spent in San Francisco, which kind of is our 49 square miles surrounded by reality, <laughs> it's, it's a bubble of its own. But I think one thing my mother pointed out: that she used to come. My, my parents both came and visited a lot here, and and uh, my mother was always a very happy person and, and walking around smiling. And she said here people smile back at you. In Sweden, when you smile at somebody, they kind of look away. And I think that captures the difference between the cultures pretty well, I think, that at least here out on the West Coast, people are very open, very friendly, go into any encounter with a very positive attitude. Uh, Part of it may be just the way Americans talk about, hey, how are you? And love what you're wearing, uh, whether they mean it or not. It's a very friendly attitude and a very inclusive way. And, and I think in, in Sweden, we're not really like that. Not like the first time you meet somebody, you're very cautious. And, and as my mom noticed, if she smiles, smiles at somebody in Sweden, they kind of they look away, they wonder, what does this person want? And, and here, many people just smile back at you. Um, I, I think that kind of captures pretty well the, the difference between the cultures. It's like the, the, the openness to, to others that you don't know yet. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, uh, I, I've grown up that way. I've always been, uh, you know, I've, I've never met a stranger. Some people say, you know, it's just like go into it and, you know, it, talk to everybody, get in an elevator. My wife goes crazy sometimes because she's like, could you just shut up every once in a while? <laughs> and this made it kind of hard to move here from Sweden. It's, it's a big uh, difference. And, and in, in Sweden, we're not used to talking about ourselves. And at least not when I grew up. It was like something you didn't really do. It was kind of frowned upon if people talked about themselves. And God forbid they say something positive about themselves that's that's a very very bad thing to do and and here people are just so good at presenting and, and so good at expressing themselves like I, I went through all levels of school and got a master's degree without ever giving a proper presentation I, I still remember when I had to present my master thesis and I was extremely nervous. I had never learned to present, never spoken in front of an audience. And now I see like my seven-year-old son, like every day, every Friday in school, they have show and tell and share moments and they can bring in anything from home and 
talk about it and explain to their classmates what it is. And it's like so built into the educational system here. And I think it's just, it's great. It's, it's a super valuable skill. And it, it's been the first few years here, like coming here, being shy, uh, not being used to talking about yourself or, or about anything uh, is, is tricky. Big culture shock, I'm sure. Yes. So what kind of student were you? So I know just personally, I was not the best. So I always like to ask everybody who's on the True Ambition podcast, where did you come from and what, what kind of a student were you? I've always enjoyed learning. I always got a kick out of learning which makes it relatively easy to learn then. Like I, I enjoyed it already in like middle school, I guess is when I start remembering these things. Like we, I, I really enjoyed math. I enjoyed physics. I enjoyed the solving problems. I also enjoyed languages. I remember I took just one year of French and, and, and really enjoyed the structure of a, a new language. And so almost any subject I, I i liked it so that made it easy to learn so i, I think i've always uh how, how many how many languages do you speak i only speak three languages uh, swedish oh. german and english and then i only speak i only speak once so you got me by two <laughs> <laughs> so but everybody else speaks english so it makes it easy for you <laughs> right because it's all about me <laughs> exactly. So we've all learned English, so we can talk to you. <laughs> so, um, when you were a kid, you know, we know where you're at now. When you were a kid, what did you dream of being when you grew up? You talked about your uh, your father's uh, printing company. What, what were your dreams and aspirations when you were younger? The the two that I remember, I don't remember in what order though, but. I was really into trains. So mm -hmm. of course I wanted to be, an, I guess you call him an engineer here. Engineer, yeah, me too. Trains, so that's one. And I was really into like animals and I loved watching these like BBC animal things on TV with my parents. So I wanted to be an animal researcher. I don't think I had any idea what that was, but uh, I wanted to do something with, with animals, preferably like big, exciting animals that you see on TV. Um, and of course, none of them happened. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to be a, a fireman, an engineer, and I wanted to uh, grab the back of a dump truck and dump garbage. Uh, uh, high aspirations. So yeah. uh, you, you talked about it before in college, you studied engineering and I also saw economics, right? Yes. Uh, it was something when I was uh, 18, 19 back then. In Sweden, we still had the draft, so it was mandatory military service. Mm. So I spent a year in the Swedish Navy uh, with pretty much nothing to do. So I started studying business and economics just for the fun of it during my military service and then continued it because I really enjoyed it, especially the economics part. Uh, it was really interesting, I thought. Well, you said before you kind of fell into uh, the industry you're in right now. How did you get into software? Hmm. I was working at uh, in the nuclear power part of ABB and actually doing a little bit of nuclear physics work 
for nuclear power plants when I was pulled into a business process re-engineering project at the company. We had many of those, like we were trying to, to re-engineer how we did business. I was pulled into one of those together with the former CIO and the former CFO of the company. So it was two great gentlemen um, with, with a very broad knowledge of the company and, and, and deep thought about how to change things. And then myself, I was like 25 and had no clue what I was doing. But, but those two gentlemen quickly realized that if we're going to make people work in new ways, we have to give them new systems that support them. And somehow throughout this project, we stumbled upon this German company that claimed to have an integrated system that you could run a whole company on. And, uh, and, and there was SAP. And we became the first SAP R3 implementation in Sweden. There were some of the SAP's mainframe software had been implemented, but uh, no, uh, none of the, the new client server products. So we did the first implementation in Sweden. And towards the end of that, I really enjoyed working with SAP, with the company, with the software. Towards the end of that, they asked me if I wanted to join them. And I said, sure, I can do that. Uh, what's your core business? And they said, it's software development. I said, then I want to do software development. And they said, okay, then you have to move to Germany because we only do development in Germany. That's how I ended up doing software development in Germany for SAP. Sometimes you just got to jump. Yep. And then it took two years or less than two years. And I think, I don't know if they got tired of having me there, but they, one day they asked if we were to open a development location in the US, a place called Foster City outside of San Francisco, would you consider going there and start up a new team? I said, yes. And they said, oh, no, no, you don't need to decide now. <laughs> I said, yes. Uh, so two weeks later, I had my bags packed and came out here, the, I think the whole like West Coast of the US and California, and I'd never been here, but it just, for, for many of us, at least my generation growing up in Europe, it's like this mythical place. It's, it's like fantastic yeah, beaches, sunshine. So they don't teach us about the, the fog in San Francisco. <laughs> I was the same way. So I grew up in a really small town in rural Northwest Illinois. Um, almost as far away as Stockholm, Sweden, or Germany, um, figuratively. Um, I met my now wife when I was living in Minneapolis. So Northwest Illinois wasn't cold enough, so I went to Minneapolis. And uh, when I met her, uh, I came out to visit her in California. Same thing, I was thinking uh, beaches, bikinis, you know, it's just, and then I get to San Francisco, I'm like, I need a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, Kind of funny, I used to have my sailboat down by Pier 39. And it's fun to see all these the tourist shops, you know, in the rest of the world, they sell t-shirts. Here they see, sell fleeces. And you see all these whole families that have bought the, the, the new fleece. Like they came here. <laughs> they didn't know about our weather. The well, that was the, the first weekend that I came out here, a good friend of hers, um, her husband is a sailor. And the, he's, he's actually a, a crew on a very large um, wooden sailboat. And uh, we got to go out that first weekend I was here. 
and uh, they're like, okay, dress in layers. It's going to be cold. We get out there. It's one of those days where it's like 75 degrees and sunny. So we're all just down to t-shirts and nothing, <laughs> you know, like it's never like this. You got really lucky. Yeah, no, it's interesting. In winter, it tends to be quite warm. Out yeah. On the winter here. It's beautiful. But then you go in July and August and it's like holding and freezing. So do you still sail uh, often? Yes, I still sail. Uh, not as often as I'd like to, but I've got a small boat here down in the marina and try to get out as much as I can and take, take the family and take our, some friends of our son and just being out there uh, with the kids. It's become more of a social thing than, than a sport, but it's still, I just love it being out on the bay. It's so, uh, so relaxing and so nice to be able to focus on the, the natural aspects of sailing and just. So going back again, what, what was your first job ever? Outside of your dad's uh, print shop, I know that was the first job for dad. That was the first job for, for a very long time. I think maybe my first job, oh, I did some internships. That was part of my high school program. We had to do some summer internships and, and, uh, my dad got me the first one, which was to work for the company that sold the printing machines that he liked. Heidelberger Druckmaschine, the German printing machine manufacturer. And there, so I, I, one summer I was working there and hanging out with the service technicians who went out to the print shops and serviced the machines. So that was my first kind of internship. And then I think the first job ever was... I was working at uh, at the hotel at the reception at night as a night clerk in a hotel reception. It was kind of in my college days. Okay, and from that first job, do you remember a lesson you learned from that first job? It was an interesting thing because I was working at night, and I was the only one. We only had one person on at night, and and there was like the the majority of of my time was there but i remember how much i enjoyed it when the day shift started and others started coming in and and you were suddenly part of a team maybe it was just three people behind the reception desk then but sometimes it got like very busy and if i'd been working night i had to kind of stay on in the morning and uh, the difference between like working on your own and being part of a small team and how much more enjoyable it is to work in a team, I think uh, that was one thing I really took away from from that the the importance to me of having other people around and, and being able to share uh, not just the work but also just helping each other out and, and sharing comments about things and, and it, it gets very lonely when you spend like ten hour ten hour night shift uh, on your own. And uh, just a, a stark contrast to them, like being with a few others and uh, during the daytime. I think that's maybe something I took away from there. Yeah, and I enjoy the camaraderie too. I've got to have that interaction with human beings. You know, the, the, the whole COVID thing has been a real uh, switch, right? So it used to be head to San Francisco, head to San Jose, head to the peninsula, wherever it was to go to lunches with clients or do whatever. And, you know, the last year plus, 
it's been what you and I are doing right now, you know, and uh, people sitting behind their desk at home with a, you know, a fake Zoom background, which makes their hair disappear every once in a while, you know, um, but just having that interaction uh, moving forward. Do you think it's going to go back to everybody being back in an office or do you think it's going to be a hybrid situation or kind of give me your two cents about that? I've been thinking a lot about that and we're trying to kind of get ready for that future. And from most conversations I've had with people, I believe that we're going to get together for a purpose. I think for many of us, the days of just going to an office to be at the office are over. The, we're, I think what people are hungry for, the ones I talk to, are is primarily to get together with the people they work with and go solve problems together and, 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 the, and, and, and work intensely with those people, not just be in a generic office with all kinds of people uh, th that desire i think is not there it's, it's just like people want to get together with the people they work with to get work done and uh, we're a very distributed company we have already before the pandemic we had a lot of people working from home maybe somewhere between a third and half of our developers were working from home uh, we now everybody is, but we also have multiple locations in San Francisco and Atlanta and Edinburgh and Scotland. So, so even like our offices are relatively distributed. So we have a lot of teams that may have team members that live far away from each other and, and that work out of different offices or out of their homes. And these people want to get together for like a week with a team somewhere. And that I think we're going to see much more of, that offices become places where teams get together for a purpose for a given amount of time and then go back again. So that's my, my uh, analysis of uh, what, what I believe we're going to see. And then I know that there are like other teams in the company and other people I've talked to who have more this desire of being in an office, but for them, it's often that their whole team is in, in that office. So I think it's a little bit the same motivation, like you want to be with your team. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch everything unfold over the next year and uh, just watch how people take advantage of it. Because for me, um, I, my team is in touch with all these different technologists all over the place that do all kinds of different things, you know, infrastructure, software, project management, everything. And you've got a lot of them are saying, well, I don't have to go to an office anymore. I'm going to choose to be around my family more. I'm not going to commute. So there's going to be a lot of choices that uh, companies are going to have to make in the future if they want to get the best people. So it's going to, it's going to be really interesting to watch the whole thing unfold. I, I completely agree. And uh, I think it's I just looking at myself and maybe I shouldn't be extrapolating from, from myself, but I never liked to work from home. I, I spent 25 years going into the office every day. And when, when this whole thing started, and suddenly I had to work from home. It took me like a week or two to get used to it, but now I really enjoy it. Like more time with the family, 
eating two or three meals together, uh, it, it certainly has, uh, has its, its positives. And I learned to, I sit, I work outside a lot. I notice I get much less tired if I'm outdoors. I go for, if I have one-on-one -on -one conversations, I go for a walk and I talk on the phone with people. And, and it's, it, I, I, it has many, many positives. And then, as I said, I was one who always went to the office just out of habit, and I thought it was the right thing to do. And um, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, there's been for, for as many bad things have happened over the course of the last year plus, there's been a lot of blessings that have come along with it and a lot of lessons that people have learned. So when you were talking before about, I've had many clients who said, no, no, I've got to have people in the office. I really can't have anybody remote. Um, and I was like, well, if you would just bend a little bit, you can get someone who can work a hybrid type thing and you can save a little money on them too. And uh, just when COVID hit, boom, it just drew the line in the sand. And it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, but what it did is it proved a point for those people who were afraid or not willing to try it and now they all go oh it, it can actually work and a lot of the times people are more productive than they were traveling to and from an office every day yeah there was something we noticed i i, I don't keep like engineering productivity metrics that that we look at all the time but um, when, when the lockdown happened we, we did look at at some numbers and it looked like our productivity within a week or so after the lockdown started it was a little bumpy in the beginning, but then productivity went up by almost 20%. Wow. And, uh, and again, these are not exact metrics of anything, but it, it seemed like people became more productive. And then I hope it's not because they kind of burnt themselves out and worked more hours, but I don't think so. I, I think it was just more focused time less distractions more uh, maybe a little bit more control over your own time um, and then again we were very remote friendly and, and remote centric in a way before this all started so i think for us as an organization uh, it was not that difficult we were in a good spot to to take advantage of it I got a couple of fun questions that I throw in here, and here's one of them. So if you knew that you were going to inherit a fortune, how would your plans for the future change? I don't know if they would. I, I'm so happy with, uh, with life in general now, like with family, work, like everything is, is pretty good. I, I cannot think of much I would. I would change. I love that answer because mine's the same. I, I don't know that I would change anything. I mean, I, I love every day <laughs> right now. Yeah. I, I don't go walk around longing for something I don't have neither yeah, me, me neither material nor emotional or anything. So it's uh, I, I honestly, I can't give you an, any other answer. Like, I don't know. That's a great answer. So you said before you were at SAP for a long time. What was your experience there? And what were some of your different jobs that you did? Because that was a, a big part of your history. I, 
I joined as a developer and it was an amazing time at the company. It was, they had just launched the, the client server product and I joined to work on that. And the company, the founders, kind of they realized they had come on to something. The company was about 20 years old and it was founded in 72. And it had grown uh, to, I don't know, it was maybe a couple of hundred people then and, and uh, was uh, still a very German and relatively small, well, it felt big at the time, but like by today's standards, relatively small company. But they knew they were onto something with this client server product and it just started taking off in the market in unexpected ways. They, well, they let, me, let me ask you a question real quick because 1972 was the year I was born. What did SAP do in 1972? The founders, five founders who all worked for IBM, who had this idea of building a fully integrated real-time system where any transaction that comes in uh, anywhere in the business, whether it's a sales order or a purchase order or, or anything else, gets into, goes into one central database and where everything gets updated. The logistics about it, if it's a sales order, like what goods has somebody ordered, but also the financials of it. And that was like the idea they had to create this integrated real-time system mm. and built two generations of that thing on mainframes uh, for 20 years until they kind of struck gold with the client server product. And they knew they were onto something and they knew it was like time to go global, big time. And they invested a lot in the product development. All founders were, were developers themselves. And, and it was a very like product development led company. And it was cool because we were, it, it was the flattest hierarchy I've ever seen. It was like, yeah, you were a developer, you had a manager, and then above them was the executive board and the executive team, which was largely the founders, plus I think back then two hired board members. So that was it. Uh, and as a developer, you did everything. We didn't have product managers. We didn't have much QA. You did everything. You were out there talking to customers, understanding their business, understanding what they're doing. You went back, you held software to support that. You built that into the system. You worked with your colleagues to make this whole thing work in an integrated fashion. And then as the release came out, you went back to your customers you've been talking to. You helped them use it. So you got direct feedback on what you had been building. And, and uh, of course, as developers back then, we were all what we would call full stack developers. No, we, we built everything from the UI to the data model and everything in between. So it was like you really, you, you owned your part of the system. It was a big system. You owned a small part of it, but it was fun. It extremely educational. So I, I learned a lot about, I started writing project management software. And then first time I, I came here to the US, uh, I built a team that developed software for the aerospace and defense industries. I learned about how aircraft are manufactured and maintained and just absolutely fascinating thing. And then I built software for the high-tech industry and I learned about how, how chips are manufactured and semiconductors and all of the different players in those supply chains and how supply chains work. It's just 
fascinating stuff. You know? It's fun and seeing it through the kind of the eyes of the the enterprise systems that that support all these business processes was was fascinating. It was something I always enjoyed working for SAP with its broad customer base was you got to see companies in all industries and, and like I spend Monday with a, a retailer in Mexico and Wednesday with a shoe manufacturer manufacturer in, in the US and it's like different business models everybody using our software it was fascinating I really enjoyed it and um, worked with some great people there as well uh, it was I, I really enjoyed it I spent 12 years uninterrupted there and, and uh, never got bored. I always had the opportunity to do new things and uh, trying to do some leading edge things. I think the company uh, was very willing to, to try new things and take risks, both uh, in, in terms of which kind of customers we went after and uh, technologies we used. Uh, there was never a... Uh, Nothing kind of held us back much. There was a willingness to try new things. So, and I had a great time. I, not a day in, in the, those 12 years did I get bored. Well, it sounds like an amazing training ground wearing every hat, you know, for moving into leadership and then executive leadership later on because you have to know every piece of what's going on at that high level to be able to lead a team. You know, so you, you have to go in because I, I work with many different clients where it's like you got a software engineer who's going to do exactly this one little piece. And that's all they're expecting that person to do. But I have other clients where a software engineer is going to go in and they have to know just like what you talked about. You're going to do your own QA. You're going to do your own UAT. You're going to do all these different things. And you got to wear all those different hats, you know, and. Some people fit into those positions, some people don't. But uh, like you said, it, it's a great training ground for later on when you're going to go out and lead people. Yes, I think so. And, and I also think that in software engineering or, or in any other of, of the, the functions we have in a modern product organization, knowing the basics of why we develop software. Why would anybody buy this? Why would anybody want to use this? It's super important because there's so many decisions you have to make every day, whether you're a designer or a product manager, engineer, quality engineer, whatever it is, you make decisions every day. And, and, and if you cannot reflect back on like, why am I, why are we building this? Well, what are customers going to use this for? If you, you don't have that frame of reference it's very difficult to make good decisions right you know you got to have that what they call the elevator pitch what do you do and if you don't know what you do you ain't selling nothing <laughs> you yeah. know and you shouldn't yeah. you, you you have to and you have to know why and then that was something i really enjoyed at sap spending time with customers and learning why are they implementing why are they buying your software why are they spending all this money implementing it why are they willing to to change their business processes to fit our software. And why is this so valuable and super interesting? I remember working with a Japanese company in their European subsidiaries that all were standardizing all of Europe onto, uh, I think it was one single instance of SAP 
And there, for them, the, the big advantage was that now they would do order processing the same way in every country, and everything would work the same way. And there's no, there's no point in doing things differently in Spain from in the Netherlands when it comes to like procurement or order processing or accounting. It's like standardizing it, uh, getting good system support for it, having everything in, in real time, having visibility into everything. It's a great thing. And mm-hmm. it, quite a kick to, to see this and to hear customers describe this. So we fast forward to present day. You are the CTO, like we talked about before, of user testing. Tell our listeners about user testing and exactly what you guys do. We, we do something that I, th- I think is fairly unique. We help our customers connect to their customers or their non-customers or people they would like to hear from that they may not know. Um, so we, and, and we do this um, over the internet remotely in a extremely scalable way. So, so the, the, the most standard use case for, for our software is that somebody wants to get feedback on something. So say you have a new design for a website or a mobile app and, and, and you want to know what people think about this. So you can put together what we call a test. Uh, you can ask a few questions. You can ask people to do something on your, uh, on your website or in your mobile app or in the real world for that matter and speak out loud while they do so. And then we record all of this. We record what people do on the screen. We record their face. We record the audio. Uh, we record like the clicks and everything. And then we take this and, and out of this, we, we, we analyze this and then we kind of create the, the uh, when I say we analyze, there's a bunch of machine learning algorithms that, that understand what comes back. And then we kind of present it to the user. And this goes very fast. So say that you have a new a website for a, a new design for a website you want to get feedback on. Most of our tests are completed within two hours. So like within two hours, your designer can hear what real people have to say. And they can look at their faces. They can look at their expressions. They can hear their voice. It becomes very human, this getting the feedback. It's great to have web analytics where you measure every click on your website. And it's great to run surveys and and kind of get feedback from people like that. And then when you kind of can see and hear people speak, real humans, that I think creates a very deep connection to people, a very high, it's a very high quality feedback, high density feedback. So that's what we do essentially. Like we, we enable people to, to connect out to humans there, and which produces what we think of as, as human insights. Like when you watch this, you, you understand what people think about your product or the experience that you provide. It doesn't have to be products. It can be marketing materials or anything like that. And this has been really interesting. Now in the pandemic, there've been so many companies have been forced to provide new experiences. Mm. Think about the things that are standard now that hardly existed a year ago, like all this online ordering and going for curbside pickup. Retailers, if they wanted to survive, they had to figure curbside pickup up out 
within a week. And so they had to create entirely new experiences they had never thought about. And we helped many of these companies test these experiences and get feedback quickly. Like within the first week of the pickup experience, uh, we had customers who ran tests every day. They were asking people about the pickup experience and they tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it until it got better. We've some, seen some amazing success stories where retailers that were very like in-store focused suddenly got had to get their web experience right and they had to get these pickup or delivery experiences right so a lot of new experiences have been created like you can't go to a restaurant anymore and look at the menu you have to like scan your code somewhere right. and stare at your phone and, and the the it, it's again new experiences that have been created and, and some are good some are less good but but it's the the companies that provide these good new experiences have had a big advantage in, in all this chaos of the past year. So when you say like uh, recording the person's face, um, so d- does does the technology actually look at the person's expression while they're answering or reading, or how, how does that technology work, and does it record the data from that, or how, how does that all work? We we don't do that yet. So we have. Um, number of data sources. One is the video of the face. One is the video of the screen. One is the audio that you speak. And one is like the clicks and, and what's actually happening on a website or taps on a mobile app. Okay. And, uh, and then we know the, 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 what, what you're trying to do. And we, we know some things about the person taking the test. And then we combine all of this and we analyze it. And we don't do facial expressions yet. Uh, we've been trying various facial expression uh, technologies, various like emotion recognition things for about a year. And, and I think uh, that there is something interesting there. Uh, we do a lot of analysis of what people say. So we pick out uh, their sentiment. We pick out what they actually talk about and whether they're frustrated or whether they're making a suggestion or whether they're expressing confusion. Uh, so we pick these things out and we we tag uh, this so that if you want to go in and you want to see just where are people confused in all of this, we can show you just a series of clips where uh, users are confused. So you can get a quick view on, on where things could be improved or you can see a, a we call it the highlight reel of, of just a series of clips of where, where people really like what they see. So you can, uh, can learn from that. So it's a different ways of kind of accessing this, this feedback, but it's like super powerful. We, we see this a lot with our customers and when, when they go, get some of these good clips and they go out and they share this within the company, it is so, uh, so persuasive when, when you actually see a real human, whether they're positive or negative, it is, it's, I mean, I'm sure it's great to have a high NPS score, but it's like not that if, if you, you, you have a few clips of people saying like, I really like this new design uh, and they explain why and they, they, they seem passionate about it. That is very, very powerful. Well, they have all of the, um, you know, when companies come out with products, they, have, they put together user groups, right? Or the uh, test groups, right? So they can actually see somebody interact with the product or whatever it is, the service, whatever it is. I mean, this has got to be a very powerful thing to look because 
everybody who creates something thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread as the creator, right? But you don't know until you put it in somebody's hand and get that back. So that's got to be pretty pretty powerful feedback. It it is. And and if you look especially at these like agile development processes that we've had in in software for a decade now, but they are becoming mainstream in like any experience development, whatever it is people are, are building, not just software. And you have to make decisions all the time throughout this. The, the, the people make decisions every day. And, and if you can base these decisions on a good understanding of your users, if you can build this, these decisions on this, like the real human feedback, you make better decisions along the way. And uh, it, it's really powerful. And it, it, when we see this implemented and used well by our customers, it creates a very human-centric uh, culture on these teams. And, and they start building empathy for their users. Because I think there's a big like empathy gap in, in many cases. If you look, especially digital experiences are created by a relatively homogeneous group of people. It's like a, most software developers are in a certain age range and, and they live in certain areas and they have like a certain income level. It, it, it's hard for them to empathize with people who are entirely different, maybe living in different parts of the world or maybe very old or very young and wh- whatever it is and in different financial situations. But if you, you hear from these people, and you build on your team this culture of empathy. It's extremely powerful. Yeah, and you you might be really close to something. You might have to just tweak something here or there to get those people or that demographic to jump on board and start using the product or the service or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And it's not only about negative things either. It, it may be that a certain group really likes oh, yeah. something. Yeah, and you if can somebody, that and, yeah, if if you've got a hundred people going, this is the best thing ever, then you know you're on the right track. Yeah. And and they tell you why it's the best thing ever. They yeah. tell you why it delights them. So you learn from that and you can apply that to to other parts of the experience you're providing. What a cool company. That's great. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. It's it's uh and it's a super useful full product that we often hear from from customers they tell us about some unexpected ways they've been using the product and how that worked well whatever they've been using it to ask their employees about something something we hadn't really thought use cases we hadn't thought about or or they they use it we we now support uh, mobile phones very well with the, the camera on the mobile phone so you can test real world experiences and customers do really interesting things with that where like they're testing packaging of physical goods and they kind of they ask people to just prop up their camera and like open the package and tell me what you think while you're opening it and they test packaging materials and all kinds of things it's a it's fascinating well they they have channels on youtube where people do nothing but open up packages I, I've got to admit, I've never told anybody this, but I've never watched an unboxing video. <laughs> Me neither. I just heard about it. And I laughed. <laughs> yeah. And these things have millions of views. It's fascinating. Watching somebody open up something. 
but it shows you the power of the video. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would would read a blog about somebody opening a box with an iPhone in it, right. or whatever it is they're unboxing. It, it's <laughs> but when you see it on video and you hear them speak, it it becomes more interesting and it's more this human connection, even if it is a, a recorded video, it's much more human than than any other media that we have today. So I told you before, I'm in the IT staffing business. So as an executive, I'm sure that you've dealt with many IT staffing vendors. What do you look for in an IT staffing vendor? The times when I've seen uh, IT staffing work well is when both sides agree to be part of one team that this is like when when the 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 buying side if you want they have to not view these people as some aliens or or somebody who goes and does the job we don't want to do Uh, they have to kind of open up the team the systems and everything and and the flip side from the the staffing side uh, people have to be willing to kind of become part of a team and not uh, stay away that's the one thing i've always been looking for and it, it hasn't always been like that i've had some cases where it's been working well and that's always the, the common thing and then i've seen cases where it's not been working well and usually it is the the buying organization that doesn't approach the, the situation in the right way yeah i've seen a lot of that too if we can go in as a partner there's a lot more um, positive things that have come out of it that way than uh, the, 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 the opposite way. Um, the, my last question about this is uh, I, I talked to a ton of managers, and I'm also curious about how you build out a team. You know, um, do you, I'm sure it depends on which situation you're in, whether you're with a startup or with a large company, but, uh, how do you go about building a team and what do you look for in your team members that kind of, uh, kind of holds them apart from uh, anybody else that you would uh, want them on your, in your organization? The way I like to, to lead a team is to develop a vision for where we want to go be very clear and, and, Preferably involve a lot of people in developing this vision. Be very clear about where we want to go and then give people the support they need to figure out how to get there. So I, I don't need to tell people, I cannot tell people what to go do every day. Um, so that's kind of the general leadership. And a lot of that, when we then build out teams uh, for this, uh, it's the cultural fit and, and like the buy in. People, who, who join these teams have to be willing to take responsibility for setting the direction. I, I cannot have people who expect to be told what to do every week or every day. It, it doesn't work like that. They have to be able, willing to figure those things out and uh, to kind of giving people a lot of freedom within certain, within a framework and, and, that's the, the cultural fit is like really do, do people are people willing to work like that does that work i think that is more important than hard technical skills anytime that it, it is always more more important 
some more personal questions. Well, some business, some personal. Um, tell me about one of the biggest challenges that you've overcame in your life. My biggest professional challenge was the first time I started managing managers. That was so different to me from managing a team. I went from managing a team and I was, it was a development team. I think we had maybe one or two product managers, but I was still a pretty good developer myself. I could go into any piece of the code and help people out and was very much like, I don't know what you call this today, like a player coach or, or something. And then going from there to managing managers. And we, suddenly it was a much larger organization. We used technologies I wasn't familiar with. And I had a very difficult time in like understanding how to manage managers. And I gravitated towards spending time with the people I enjoyed spending time with. And spent less time with the people I didn't enjoy spending much time with, which of course led to their parts of the organization didn't deliver. I didn't see that. So I fell pretty flat on my face, uh, kind of the first time managing managers. And uh, it took a while to recover from that and to understand what happened. It was like the first time in my professional life I hadn't exceeded expectations. I hadn't delivered more faster than, than planned and and, uh, and it, it's a big ego bruise yes yes so that was interesting it, it uh, took me a while to to get over that and, and to like understand what happened and then uh, understand how to really build organizations to make sure that doesn't happen again so what was uh what was the lesson and how did you learn the lesson to get you to a point where you became a great manager of other managers? I, I think it's to realize that it's all about people and it's all about uh, making sure people feel comfortable sharing problems early on, uh, make, making sure somebody I worked with a few companies ago uh, created this, this uh, slogan for our team just saying no surprises we don't want any surprises if anything is going faster than expected or slower than expected or you have technical difficulty somewhere or some design we have cooked up doesn't really work just tell us now and and then we can adjust and, and it doesn't become a big surprise towards the end and and i think in this no surprises um you have to build the whole culture for that. You, you have to create the willingness for people to speak up. You have to give them the, the, the channels to, to speak up through. You have to make sure that the person who speaks up is rewarded for it and not punished for it, even if it's a difficult message they deliver. And, and it, it, that, I think, is what building an organization is about, is to make people feel safe, uh, make people be informed about what we're trying to achieve so they also know what good and bad looks like, and they can judge that themselves. Um, I, I think that's the big, big takeaway from this, is you have to make sure that there's a lot of communication, that people trust each other, that they, they do speak up, that they understand what the other functions are doing. We've touched upon this a few times today, that uh, 
if you're a software developer, you have to know like what does a product manager do? What does a designer do? What do the quality engineers do? Where, what do the ops people do? How does your code behave in, 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 uh, once it's in production? And, and, and same for all of these functions. They have to know what the others do. And, and, and I think when you create that, you create a culture that uh, can build great things pretty quickly and quite predictably. No surprises. I love it. Professionally, who has been your biggest inspiration? I had the, at SAP, I had the good fortune to work uh, relatively closely with Hasso Plattner, one of the founders. And I've always been amazed by his ability to both think big about what's going on in the enterprise software industry and, and what's going on in industries outside of, of our industry that, that we need to, to react to, that we need to support. And at the same time, being great with details, being great with technical details, being great with organizational details, knowing people individually while running a big company in a fast-changing industry. And, and this whole span of different, uh, different magnitudes of, of decision-making and, and being able to hold all of that together, I think, is fascinating and, and very inspiring. And on a personal level, who is your biggest inspiration? I just like my son a lot. He is uh, always has a positive attitude, wakes up every day with a smile, always has something positive to look forward to in his day. Uh, that's a big inspiration. I, I think it's the, this positive attitude, uh, the positive outlook is so helpful. If you start your day looking forward to it it's probably going to be a pretty good day <laughs> right yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna walk in the house here in about an hour and uh little johnny's gonna be going crazy yelling dada so uh day's all good doesn't matter what happened prior to that it's all good <laughs> so I, I hear you there so um what was the most notable event in your life that led you to where you are today I don't know. I think it's been a series of events that have maybe more or less just happened to me that uh, I got into the university program I wanted, like the day it started, I think. They called me. I was my dad's print shop again, and and, and they, they called there. I managed to hear the phone ring. I went pick it up, and they said, like, hey, do you want to come? study engineering physics here in, in Uppsala. Uh, I said, yeah, that would be really cool. That's what I really want to do. Uh, when does it start? I said, it starts today, but you can come tomorrow. <laughs> so, so it was like, it was that. And then I kind of, I got kind of a dream job after, after that. And, and uh, as I told you earlier, I just happened to join SAP. That was a big thing, I think, getting out of the nuclear power industry, which isn't the world's most dynamic place, and, and into, into software. And then two years later, they sent me off to the west coast of the United States. And I've been 25 years in San Francisco now. So it's been like a series of these little things, many of them, all of them pretty much unplanned. 
uh, wasn't stuff I had really planned for. And so it might be that you saying yes to multiple things might be the key to your success. I, I think so. And, and uh, again, saying yes and looking at it as an opportunity. And, and this is going to be good. Yeah. And guess what? It was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, sometimes that opportunity is right in front of people. And you just have to be willing. You know, the door's open. There's no yeah. lock. There's no nothing. You have to be willing to walk through. And, and not question yourself and not focus on everything that could go wrong, uh, focus on the opportunity. I, 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 uh, I don't know about you. It sounds like maybe your parents were the same way, but my, my mom could told me, told me from the very beginning I could do anything. You know, it was just, it, my mom is one of the most positive people in the world, you know, and uh, growing up in a very small town in the Midwest, it, it's, there, there was a radio, my, my town's 1,500 people, so... The world is very big when you grow up in a town of 1,500 people, right? And uh, to be sitting here today talking to you, um, you know, it, it's, it's a world away from where I grew up at. But my mom told me I could do anything I wanted to. And it's a very important thing. It's the same thing I'm passing on to my son is that you get to do whatever you want to. As long as you work hard, you're honest, you're humble. You know, there's a lot of things that go with it. But, uh, you know, you can do whatever you want to. Sky's the limit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and I, I think it's fascinating to, to think ahead one generation, just like seeing all the opportunities these kids have in, in front of them, like just the world as it is today. It's with, with, uh, just a difference from, from when I grew up and, and their ability to connect to others and to see the world and, and feels like we're in a new age of space exploration now where i think it's just fascinating what's going on in in uh, in, in in space at the moment and with the, the mars uh, progress and uh, the rovers and the little helicopter they just flew up there the other day and i saw that it's just to that hole and just project 50 years forward where that's all going to be i mean it's amazing well just look where we were 50 years ago you know, it yep. seems like, you know, I'll be 49 here in a couple of weeks, you know, 1971. I mean, that, that seems like 150 years ago now because of yeah. where technology is at today. Yeah. So a couple of fun questions before we end here. What do you miss about your childhood? Oh, I only remember positive things. So I miss the long summer days being like out with friends on, on, on a beautiful Swedish summer evening when the sun, like in Stockholm, the sun hardly sets. It's like light all day, like those childhood things. And the winters, of course, I only remember the beautiful, sunny, snowy days when there was lots of snow and the sun was shining and we were digging uh, forts into these huge piles of, of snow and we're having snowball fights and everything was just... And then you go in and mommy has a hot chocolate for you. <laughs> so lots of those little things. I, I often think about like sailing, my first little sailboat uh, off of the, the dock of our cabin and, and just being out alone on, on the, the boat and 
uh, kayaking. I grew up kayaking with my dad. And again, I just remember, of course, the beautiful sunny days, uh, kayaking around the archipelago from island to island, camping, always looking to find an island of our own, camping there. So it's a lot of these things I remember. And I'm not going to say I necessarily miss them, but I have a lot of happy memories about it. How often do you go back? Uh, used to be about once a year. Uh, haven't been in the past year for obvious reasons. But right. Hopefully it will pick up again. Good. So I know my answer to this question that would be no, but would you likely survive alone in the wilderness? Not impossible. Uh, depends a little on how wild the wilderness is <laughs> and what's around me, but uh, I have spent a bit of time in. Uh, in the backcountry, skiing in winter, and uh, done a lot of backcountry skiing uh, all over the world, and done a, a fair amount of hiking in, in different places. And, and uh, I don't think I could survive for long in a very wild wilderness, but uh, I think for for a while, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I'd have a day or two. I, I would take Ed with me. Ed's like MacGyver; he can just like create anything out of anything. <laughs> So, well, I've got one more question for you. It's the same question I ask to everybody when we end out the True Ambition podcast. So you've been a lot of places. You've done a lot of things. Being where you've been and knowing what you know now, what is your true ambition in life, both personally and professionally, moving forward? I think it's actually the same both personally and professionally, and it's helping others, particularly others near me, grow and, and, and reach their potential. I think I've been very fortunate and, and in, in my life. I felt like, just as you said, I, I can do whatever I want. I, I always felt like there are possibilities. And uh, I always say personally, I love to see my son take opportunities and, and see possibilities and, and, and go and do what he enjoys. And same thing professionally. I think my, my interests have gone from maybe initially it was a bit around the technology and then it became around the, how we support customers' business. And, and, and maybe 10, 15 years ago, it turned more to the people and like how do you lead an organization and help the people in that organization become what they can become and, and see the opportunities and take the opportunities. So I think it's the same thing personally and professionally. It's uh, uh, helping the ones around me reach their potential and, and grab the opportunities that, that are out there. I love it. Well, I tell you what, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, this has been a fun podcast and uh I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you very much. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody, and listening to the True Ambition Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. Ambition.